to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Alice Duckett in here in place of Anna Brading, who has taken some time off. I know everybody's very excited to have me hosting. Uh, yeah. Uh, Excitement. Excitement. That was so spot. You know, we'll never know that wasn't spontaneous because Alice can cut out the quiet bit where we were all gobsmacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to actually insert even more excitement over that. So, Exactly. Excellent. So today I'm joined by Greg. Hello. Thanks for not calling Mark. me Fido. Well, actually, I should have, shouldn't well, I? I'm known no, as no, Fido no, to don't. the podcast listeners. I'm being bullied, listeners. They're bullying me. Uh, also, Mark Stockley, welcome. Hi. And of course, Paul Ducklin. Hello, folks. So coming up on today's show, Greg's talking about how a woman accidentally ordered a stalker in the subway. Mark's talking about what you need to patch right now. And Duck's telling us why there is a demon in the printer. Cue artificial scream here. (laughs) But before all that, here are some of the top stories from the week. So phishing scams are simpler than ever with the latest DHL fish claiming that you have an incoming shipment and all you need to do is click to track your parcel. Obviously, the advice is don't (sighs) click. Come on! I need. We need to have a word with the scammers here. Now, come on, scammers! Is there? There's nothing left. Nothing you won't ruin if they dare touch that Domino's pizza tracker. Ooh! Yes, <laughs> true. Hey, hey Greg, what you have to do is click the link to track your pizza, dude. It's happening. <sighs> I can't click That's anything the whole now. Idea. But it is a warning that less is often more, right? Because we rely on all these cues, and people have got this idea. Well, look for the spelling mistakes. Look for the demands. Look for the urgency. Look for the if you don't click in twenty four hours, you're doomed, etc. Now they're just saying click to track, like everybody mm. does. So it's you can see why people would just go, oh yeah, uh, I, I'm expecting a delivery from so-and-so. And I've received deliveries where other people are sending me something and you don't actually know in advance necessarily because they haven't found you which... <laughs> but you don't necessarily know which career company they've chosen, right? Good Yeah, point. and also there's a lot of postal delays at the moment. And like I've ordered loads of stuff because obviously you can't go to the shop. I can't, I can't even remember. It's a surprise every time a parcel arrives. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do? Let's say you have actually ordered something and you know it's being delivered by DHL and you do want to track the parcel because you want to know when it's going to arrive and the fishers get reasonably lucky and they send you an email saying your DHL parcel is coming. You can track it by clicking on this link. Take the tracking number. Don't click links. Take that tracking number. Go to the official website. There's always Mm -hmm. a way to track your parcel on the website where you can just then type in or paste the... That's a general rule, in fact, for emails that say, hey, you can click here to do whatever it is to track your order, do your bank account, confirm the transaction. If you know what... You should know the, the main URL you go to either as Greg said, because when you when you order the thing, they'll give you a tracking code and a link. So just ignore links in emails. Use it as a notification, not as a call to action, and you'll be much, much safer. It's less convenient. It takes a bit more time, but it can save you a lot of heartache. Good advice. Um, so also, Microsoft is the latest browser maker to, along with Chrome and Firefox, to join DNS over HTTPS. Hey, it's happening. It's we talked about this last episode, didn't we? But yeah, it does seem to be. Even the big players are now diving in. I, would, I actually would have thought Microsoft might have been the ones to, to, to be far later to the game. So bravo for them. For no, no, no. They're, they're, all, they're, all, um, they're all privacied up now. Yeah. Because they, they realised... They're than they used to be. They realised uh, a few years ago uh, during the Do Not Track debacle mm-hmm. that actually their major one of their major competitors now is Google. Yeah, and yeah. There are, because Google is paid for through advertising, there are limits to what Google can do in terms of privacy. Uh, so it's a very easy win for Microsoft often just to try and leap ahead. I mean, they're, they're slightly behind Google yeah. now but in, in this. But in general, you can see that they're sort of looking for opportunities to go, well, we can go here and Google can't follow. And that's kind of interesting. I guess interesting. they've also taken the, they've taken the opportunity to read what people are saying in the market because this whole idea of de- secure DNS but only while you're browsing is a bit of a mixed blessing, isn't it? You know, there are some people who say, actually, we should solve the problem at the DNS, I'm looking up a server name uh, level inside the operating system, rather than giving people secure browsing and leading them to infer that nobody can track the servers that they're using. Although, of course, their email client and their software updaters and all the other 
HTTP using apps that they've got won't have secure DNS if they're relying entirely on it being in the browser. So it is but a you, bit you, of a double-edged sword. You have sword, to imagine that, that they've had that conversation. I assume that there was a meeting somewhere in Microsoft and they, they got in the person who looks after the DNS resolver in the operating system and the like, people who look after the browser and they went, right, the best place to do this is to put it in the resolver in the operating system, not to do something separate in the browser. And then they had a short conversation how that would take five years and cost a million, billion, trillion dollars. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it would change uh, a thousand other pieces of code. And then they just decided, okay, well, let's just well, do the browser is, for now. It, it's more we'll dependent later. on other people, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, yeah, I guess. Uh, so right. not both? I guess if you do both, then when you're, when it, when, when DNS as a whole is completely sorted, then you'd no longer need the extra complexity of having DNS over yeah. HTTPS. You can just have DNS over TLS instead. But it's, yeah, so I guess good on them. It's like out's better than out, as they say. Yep. And another day, another data breach, but this time it's a database of criminal account holders from the no longer existing oh. WeLeak data available for sale oh. on the dark web. Well, no. at least they complied with the Trades Descriptions Act. Yeah. Our WeLeak data is exactly what they did in, in all senses. Oh, did the hackers get breached? Yeah, but remember that there's stuff that when those breaches happen, it's not just that you learn about the crooks. You also might learn about law enforcement people who've been who've, who were may have been close to something, pulling something off I mean, that we all let's like. Be a bit more honest here. Like, what criminal is going to go onto a website? Please fill in your personal details. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll put down my home address. It's fake data. Like, I would imagine most of those there's you know, many a slip twixt the cup yeah. and the lip. We do sometimes find the hackers making really silly mistakes. Yes. So I guess. Some of it must be real. <laughs> yes, I, I think Greg, you've got a slightly rose-tinted view of the uh, level of expertise of some hackers, at least there. Sure, if you ever, yeah, if you read I'm still anticipating there not being uh, a whole ton of useful data in there, and it could be some people have now yeah, been you've got to, like, the ones you really want to catch aren't just going to pony up their their yeah, details. Yeah. But if you read about dark web uh, site, you know when the big dark websites go down, there's often something stupid happening. Um, you know, for all the encryption and cleverness of the dark web, you know, they've gone yeah, and opened a Reddit X account. Our real IP number, colon, your number yeah. inserted here, or something crazy. So, Duck and I will be doing a video on the dark web later this week. So, if you do want to learn more about that, it will hopefully be going live. Are you on doing the video on the dark week? web? <laughs> Yeah. How are you no, going to find each other? About the dark web. Well, uh, we uh, won't be able to. We're going we? to use anonymizing protocol. No, it's not going to be that technical. We're just going to make sure that people know what it is and what it isn't and how it can and can't protect your anonymity. Because I think a lot of people think, hey, I downloaded Tor. Now I can do whatever I want and no one will ever know. <laughs> I Very thought you slowly. were going to do a video on the dark web and just challenge people to find the uh, the URL for it. Come find our <laughs> onion, yeah. <laughs> It's on there somewhere. We're publishing one character a week of our onion address. <laughs> First to get there wins a modest prize. Keep trying, Alice. So on to today's stories. Greg, tell us about how a woman accidentally ordered herself a stalker in Subway. Yeah, all right. So uh, this comes from the story from Lisa Vass, one of our writers. A woman stalked by sandwich server via her COVID-19 contract tracing info. I mean, mm. the title kind of says it all. Um, I'm going to be honest Greg, with you. Story- know what was really weird about that story is when it came out, the, the, the version I saw, it had, it had put a line break in the headline. And so the, I saw the first line, it said, woman stalked by sandwich. And I thought, yep. my goodness, this sounds terrifying. Um, but Only actually, on the, the internet. Kind of <laughs> the story, and then it was woman stalked by a sandwich server. And we had people commenting saying, I've heard of a mail server. I've heard of a web server. What's a sandwich server? I want one. They've become really popular in lockdown. Pseudo, make me a sandwich. A project. Ooh. A nice restful sandwich. <laughs> oh so dear. you were saying something about uh, what sounded like quite a serious story. It is quite, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Sorry. I'm kind of, I'm very filled with cl- uh, conflicting emotions in this. So, I mean, as you, you know, as, as you can kind of gather, someone having their uh, contact information abused when they're trying to buy a sandwich, it kind of fills me with a mixture of cringe, um, but ultimately quite a large amount of anger. So I'll so try and contain it and tell this story. Why but- were they handing oh. over contact details 
Well, maybe while they were buying a sandwich. Sit, shush your mouth and then listen to my story. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm full of anger. So, okay, so the story is about this woman. Um, she's only going to be referred to as Jess. Don't even know if that's her real name, but we will be calling her Jess because that's what the news outlets uh, that covered this did. Um, so she's from Auckland, New Zealand, and she took a lovely trip down to a local Subway fast food restaurant and ended up with a lot more than just a sandwich. Now, given this kind of current pandemic that's going on, many countries are trying to perform contact tracing. It's effectively a way of getting everyone to track their interactions with other people so that if someone should catch the virus, there's this trail uh, that can be followed with of all the people that everyone's been in contact with so you can figure out who they might have infected along the way and, and get them tested and so on. It's a, it's a pretty smart, uh, smart way of doing things. Now, Jess, uh, the responsible adult that she is, she was kind of happy to provide her contact details without hesitation to this restaurant as uh, she was, you know, asking for a rather long sandwich. And the form uh, that she filled in... Rather long sandwich. Well, Subway's, uh, you know, kind of notorious for providing a foot-long sandwich or a, a six-inch oh, right. sandwich, a half-foot. Much longer than they are tall or wide. That's, That's because it's probably short for submarine, in case yeah. you didn't realise. A six-foot realize. sandwich would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, she, so when she ordered, you know, they asked for uh, her information to, you know, to, to put into their sort of contact tracing database. So the form asked for her name, her home address, her email address, and a phone number. However, the guy who, uh, who took her order used her contact information to repeatedly and persistently hit her up. <laughs> so yeah, as you can see, there's a kind of mixture of cringe, but also this is this is kind of a blatant abuse of personal information. So yeah. Jess was quoted as saying, "I felt pretty gross. He made me feel really uncomfortable. He's contacting me. I didn't ask him to do that. I didn't want that. Uh, I'm lucky that I live with quite a few people because if I was by myself at home, he knows my address. You know, I'd feel really, oh. really scared. Even now, I feel a bit creeped out and vulnerable." Um, just- so how was he contacting her? So he has her name. On- Obviously. So did he contact her via social media, by her phone number? Like, what was he doing? Well, it seems he was contacting her via a variety of means. Like, it wasn't just, mm. uh, just you know, dropping a, uh, you know, dro- dropping a text message. It seems they've been reaching out over uh, things like Facebook and other messaging apps and so on. Really trying to oh get in contact God. with this woman pr- clearly made a bit of an infatuation because, you know, he put some olives in some bread for her. And that clearly is a sign that, you know, now they must love you <laughs> for making a wonderful sandwich. Um, oh again. God. Anger. So <laughs> try to keep myself <laughs> uh, kind of toned down, but this is kind of ridiculous. Um, ultimately, like I, you know, I do not blame her one iota, nor should anyone else, because okay, it's somewhat sketchy sharing your personally identifiable information, um, especially as there's always a risk when you do share it of stuff like this happening or worse. But there's a really good reason that she shared that data in this instance. Um, before we, it sounds like we're kind of hitting on Subway too much, they've already stated they've put some new measures in place and they've switched to a digital contact tracing system in all their restaurants. And they do state that these systems will store details securely, uh, although I'm not actually aware of any kind of details about how it's stored securely. Um, but they do say that only sort of uh, authorities should be able to get access to that information. But also, more importantly, Subway have suspended this employee pending an investigation good. into this incident. Yeah, yeah too good. right. Um, they state the employee I would don't be know if it's the first time he's done that as well like if if he if he did that that persistently and openly like this probably isn't his first time I mean yeah that's, behaving that that's way. indicative of an interesting personality type to sort of see that oh look you know someone put their details down here I can go and just take advantage of that and approach yeah. them and annoy them and and stalk them uh, without any indicator that they sh- you know that they wanted you to and almost certainly she continuously said no thank you not interested no yeah. I have a partner and so on but I imagine she was ignored every single time she said that I think um, this is a good reminder Reminder uh, for people when there's a data breach of stuff that has been collected and allegedly stored securely rather than written down on a piece of paper where it can be photographed with a mobile phone or copied more easily than after it's in the system, is that you know you get data breaches where people go, oh, well, it was only name, email address, and phone number. It's not a big deal. No credit cards were harmed in the, in the making of this data breach. It's a big reminder that even that data is enough to cause quite a bit of heartache for the people involved uh, because it may not lead to you know mass spamming or mass security problems. But for somebody in this position who says, oh, now I know so-and-so's phone number, then I can look them up on various instances messaging services and I can start to hassle them. It's why any PII leaked in a data breach is a big deal, not just credit card numbers. You can get a new credit card number, but it's much harder to move house or get a new phone number, much less convenient to get a new phone number. Or a new name. Well, the house thing makes me think of a different scenario with taxi drivers. 
And obviously some taxi drivers are completely normal, but I have had experiences with taxi drivers dropping me off at my house after a night out before and sort of lingering or asking really personal questions. And you're like, you know where I live. Mm. And also it's like 1am and I'm just going into my house. And I do think that sometimes even just small information like your address can make you feel like, oh my God, I wish I didn't give them that information. Yeah. The the thing, what worries me about this, apart from the, the the personal distress that Jess experienced in this is that the is the chilling effect that this might then have on other people wanting to hand over yeah, exactly. uh, information for contact tracing. Because what you're talking about, Alice, and what this story is about is the contract that you have. We talked about this a little bit last week. When you hand over information, she, she was handing over information for contact tracing. Yeah. And a very it's important reason. When, yeah. and, and, you know, you're giving a taxi driver your address so that that taxi driver can drop you home. And that is the only reason they have their address. And part of the contract you have with them is that they're going to respect that they have effectively a license on your information. They have a license to use your information for one thing, but they don't have a license to use it for another. They don't have a license to linger. They don't have a license to contact you. They don't have a license to take contact tracing information and use that to contact you. And if people start to believe that those licenses are being abused, but the, um, what this makes me think of as well is, it, you know, lots and lots of countries in the world are looking at contact tracing and contact tracing apps at the moment. And there's a lot of concern around the privacy. Um, uh, you know, how will the information be gathered? How will it be stored? Who will have access? And I think, you know, I can think of stories. This is, this is you know, someone in Subway you know, who make sandwiches for a living, abusing the contact information of somebody that they met. And so it's kind of a small scale uh, thing. It's a big deal for Jess, but it's a, it's, it's doesn't affect lots and lots of people. Um, but I remember when Edward Snowden released all that information about NSA uh, wiretapping and spying, that yeah. there were stories in that information about uh, intelligence agents using details from X key score, which was like the sort of search facility that they used to search through all the information the NSA was gathering. And they were using that to check up on ex-partners. And it's like, you know, wherever you shine the torch and whatever system you look at, there is no group of people who are above uh, abusing data they've got access to. And I think there's a, you know, we've got to be really careful when we put together these contact tracing apps that we design them so that we aren't reliant on there being a group of people who are going to behave nicely with the information that they that they have uh, in front of I them. I think that's such a good point because, like you say, if people on that level aren't using the data in a trustworthy way, then you definitely can't expect taxi drivers and people in subway to who don't even have – they probably aren't even trained on not using that data. Yeah. It probably isn't even mentioned. Make sure you don't do that because it would just be expected that nobody would. And you can't necessarily rely on the system that looks after the data noticing that someone's abused it. I mean, sometimes that does happen. Yeah. We've written on Naked Security, uh, on, sadly, on several occasions about, for example, you know, cops who they, they got someone's vehicle tag and then they thought, oh, I fancy that person. They go and look them up online and they got caught because somebody reviewed who'd accessed what and figured, hey, there was no reason for you to look that up. That was a personal thing. That's out of order. But just Snowden himself, the fact that he could make off with all that data and he got yeah. to choose when to release it and nobody realized beforehand uh, is an indication that you know that data could, or, or, or the Chelsea Manning saga, data that's supposed to be kept private and you'd expect to be kept private, cannot just be accessed by one or two rogue people and not noticed. It could walk out of the door in a huge amount and only be found out later when it's leaked. And that's a huge issue that you're right with these contact tracing apps, particularly like in the UK, we've got this one that they've decided not to use the Google slash Apple combined. Let's do this so that the de-anonymization is done on each individual's phone. Let's just collect it centrally. It's easier, it's faster, it's more useful. That's going to be a massive database. And who knows how long they're going to want to keep it, given that the background radiation from infections with this virus could go on for months or even years. Mm. So it is a rather open question. When does that data expire? And can we expect it to be deleted? All that stuff that the subways are collecting and the takeaways and um, restaurants where you've eaten and so forth, now they're reopening. So I think we have and, a, and who a sort of privacy collision coming up. has access to it? Yes, because you can argue that particularly, you know, in the case of marketing, where you're collecting stuff for marketing purposes, I think the law and people's expectations are that 
you know, that it's it, it's reasonable to expect that you're not just going to give it to all and sundry or people that you think of later. And the laws put protections in place. But you think with with tracking data like this, which is relating to a a, a serious global virus infestation, then the groups of people who may want or need access to this, you know, you you wonder how many of those groups going to be and how well is this data going to be anonymized in future, given that the more you anonymize it, the less useful it is for the very purposes for which it was collected. And also, the corollary to that is that the more you collect, the less useful your anonymization becomes. And we've also, there's there's a great story we wrote, it's a couple of years ago now on Naked Security, about the authority that looks after New York taxis was asked to provide information. Someone wanted to know, it was a, you know, it was they had green credentials and they were going, I want to know how, you know, what's the peak time for taxi journeys? How many taxi journeys are there? Can this be reduced? What effect is this having on pollution? But what they got was a load of anonymized taxi rides, but they realized that the hashes of the taxi cab numbers, because the taxi cab numbers in New York follow a really, really strict formula, like just a, a, a small number of permutations of letters and digits, that they could de-anonymize all those hashes one time and look up anybody, anytime they liked. So the problem is that when you do anonymizations, it's easy to make a blunder where something is technically anonymous, but can actually with very little computing power, in this case, it was like an hour and a half on a laptop or something, can be completely de-anonymized. I'm not saying that would happen in this case, but Mark's right. The more data you've got and the more different sources it's collected from, A, you've got more copies to worry about deleting and anonymizing. So there may be unanonymized copies left behind. And the more likely it is that there'll be a way to kind of put all the pieces together. Mm. Well, it's a very interesting topic, and I imagine there'll be more stories coming out as these apps become more widely used. I mean, ultimately, there's two things I think we can all take away from this. Um, and I think we should all kind of internalize this because we need to be able to repeat it to other people. But right. First is stop abusing access to personally identifiable information. Should be rather blatantly obvious you shouldn't be doing that. People have a right to privacy and they're constantly having to balance their desire for privacy against the desire for disclosure and communicating themselves to other people. You know, this abuse causes us to restrain how open we are. It puts a chilling effect upon society. I mean, the sheer number of people that I know that have now completely ditched Facebook and even social media in general, it really highlights this. And then finally, and I really, and I'm, again, to listeners, I'm not really directing this directly at you, but hopefully you can repeat this to other people. When someone says no to your advances, it means no. By ignoring them when they say no, you're making it really clear you have zero respect for them. You're making it clear that you don't listen to them. You don't prioritize their feelings, that you're happy to hurt them in favor of prioritizing yourself above them, that you're ignoring their boundaries and that ultimately you're an inconsiderate person. No one wants to be with someone who doesn't respect them, right? No matter how hard you try, you're just underlining the fact that you don't respect them and that you don't deserve their affection. If someone says no, accept it, respect it and move on. You're doing yourself a lot of favors. All right. I can try and calm down now. <laughs> this honestly <laughs> really, really triggered me, this story. I hate this kind of, because I think, Mark, you were the one that first person to point out the whole idea of it putting a chilling effect on all of us. Um, you know, that, that, you know, that might mean that Jess never, never wants to go back to that, that store. She might not want to even provide our contact tracing information to other people. You know, it has an impact on all of us. That one, uh, you know, that one selfish act by that, that employee affects, you know, lots and lots and lots of people, not just Jess. I definitely think it's like a, a, a behavior because I was thinking when I was reading this story that even when I go to Starbucks, for example, you know, they always ask for your name mm. and I always put a jokey name and that's all just become a thing that I never give my real name now. But when I think about it, it's also because I don't want to give my name to people yeah, and, and it's something as simple it's something as simple as my, my name. I just don't want to give that information out. And so I do think that in these scenarios, you know, we are becoming, even if we're not actively aware of the behavior that we're doing, mm. we're like passively or unconsciously yeah. doing these things because our data is misused all the time. So it's an important thing to raise. But unfortunately, we need to move on from that one. But I'd love to know what our listeners think of that story because I, I think it's very interesting. But Jack, we're going to move on to you if that's okay. It is very okay. Can you tell us why there is a demon in the printer? 
Yes, uh, this is a Wayne or bug with an impressive name. It's in some ways it's a small story because the bug is not absolutely critical. It's not a complete disaster. The crooks can't use this bug in Windows to take over your computer remotely. But it was one of the many bugs that was fixed in the last Patch Tuesday updates. It didn't get much coverage at first because it wasn't the remote code execution or crooks can implant malware in your computer without so much as a buy or leave. But it did get a lot of publicity because two guys who'd worked on it, Alex Ionescu and uh, Yarden Shafir, of a, they're a, a security seminar company, I think in the US, are called Winsider. They, they discovered this thing and they obviously they wanted their 15 minutes of fame. So they dubbed it Print Demon. Now, any Unix listener will know that Demon or Daimon, as maybe you should say it, is uh, the Unix shorthand for a background process. And in ancient Greek, the daimon is it's it's not a good or a bad deity. It's like a sort of it's almost like a, a kind of it's sort of like a guardian angel in modern terms, if you like. And the idea is that they're processes that run in the background, they don't have a logged in user, they're not connected to the keyboard or the screen, they just do stuff to make the operating system work. So they left out the A out of demon in Unix terminology. Uh, and the idea is it's the background service in Windows, which in Windows is called the Windows print spooler, that when you print to a printer, because the printer could be offline, it could be out of paper, it could be low on toner, it could have missing ink, so you have to go to the shop and buy more, whatever it is. Generally, when programs print, they don't print directly to the printer. They print to this spooler program. The spooler program stores the output data till later in a temporary file or something like that, and then prints it when it can. And what they discovered is they found a way that, in theory, you could trick the Windows print spooler in so that you print a file now uh, or print something from a document now, but what you print is actually the contents of a program. And later on, you trick the spooler into, use, into writing, printing that file to uh, a program that's actually part of Windows itself. So it was called Demon, as in the scary sense, not the guardian angel sense, because in theory, you could use this to send a print job that later causes you to run a program that gives you more privilege than you deserve. So, Instead hang of being on, let you, me see if I, your let admin. me see if I got this right. So you... You, the, the malicious actor is on the network or on a Yes, on a you need to be inside, computer. you need to be on the computer yep. already. So it's not a break-in from outside some, attack. Some malware they want to run. They send the yes, malware. Or a configuration file they wish to change. There are lots of ways you could use this, but the main way I imagine they'll want to drop malware in a privileged directory where right. Windows so will let, run it by so, mistake. So they've got some malware. Yep. They, they print the malware. Yes. To the to the print spooler. And then the yes. print spooler can then be told to, let's say, overwrite notepad with your malware. Is that right? That, that's the that's the sort of long and short of it. That's a that's okay. a that's a good way of describing it. And the reason it works that way is one of the fundamental problems you get if you're a programmer, you're developing what Unix calls a daemon or what Windows calls a service, this background process, is there are all kinds of things that can go wrong because you're, you have a process that's acting on behalf of any possible user on the system, including the system itself. You also have no screen, uh, you have no keyboard, you have no mouse, so you can't interact with the user. If you're going to put up a message, you have to stick it in a file somewhere and hope that it doesn't get into the wrong hands. But most importantly, you can imagine the idea of a print spooler is if, if the printer's offline, or it could be even across the network, not available at the moment, you need to keep that file for later and then print at some later time. And apparently what these guys discovered is if you could provoke the spooler, for example, in some way, I haven't gone into how they do this. It's actually more complicated than they allowed people to infer in their blurb, which is a bit of a problem. I think that that gave this bug a, a sort of credibility maybe it didn't deserve. But the problem is that if you print something and the print spooler on Windows is able to print it immediately, it says, hey, Paul Ducklin's printing this, so I will pretend to be Paul Ducklin. That way, I won't be able to overwrite any file that Paul Ducklin couldn't overwrite himself, so you're kind of safe. Mm. But if you print it later, for example, when the system reboots and before Paul Ducklin logs back in, the print spooler may decide, hey, the printer's online. What a nice thing to have the print job waiting when Mr. Ducklin logs in later. So it may decide to print it then. And the slip twixt cup and lip is at that point, 
the print spooler forgets to pretend to be Paul Ducklin and it actually does its printing job as the admin. So when it writes to the temporary file, it's able to write to a file or a directory that it shouldn't supposed to. And part of that problem is that Windows allows a regular user with one line of PowerShell, or allowed, this is now patched, with one line of PowerShell, you can say, hey, I want to create a thing. Windows calls it a printer port. It's basically the spool file name you want to use. You can put any file name there you like, including a file name that you're not allowed to write to. And the idea is that the print spooler doesn't check that you have write access to the file at that point. It assumes that it will correctly remember that it's you and check later on. Because after all, the privilege of the file could have changed later. And so that's the problem in the fact that it lets you set something up, which is a kind of re- a recipe for greater disaster further on. And that's very hard to program against because of all the exigencies. There are so many different types of printer, so many types of spooler files, so, do we, so many locations. Do we know how they fixed? I'll read from the Microsoft blurb. Uh, what they said during the fix is, an elevation of privilege vulnerability exists when the Windows print spooler service improperly allows arbitrary writing to the file system. Uh, uh, And they just said, uh, uh, obviously, to exploit this vulnerability, an attacker would have to log on to an affected system, run a specially crafted script. uh, And basically, they have changed the privilege checking to make sure that this doesn't happen again. The interesting part is that it seems that this bug may have been in Windows pretty much sort of since the NT4 days. So we're talking about the last millennium. So this has escaped notice. Nobody spotted it. Um, well, I'm, I'm not surprised that nobody spotted years. it because I, I think we need to give these guys a lot of kudos. How you manage to reliably exploit something on a printer or in, in the software connected to a printer is beyond me simply because I can't get a printer to do the same thing twice. <laughs> I was going to join you on this. Doing what it's supposed to be doing. Like before we started the podcast today, I thought I'll print out my script, which is basically a notepad file. It's a, it's a text edit file, right? So it's just just a plain text file, two pages. I do this every week and every week I get a slightly different result. So what I got today was I got me staring at my printer and my printer doing absolutely nothing at all and my computer looking for my printer. And then I thought, well, I'll power off my printer. So then I clicked power off. So then my printer said, we're powering off. And it looked at me for two minutes telling me it was powering off. And I thought, you're not powering off. You're just telling me you're powering off. So then I had to forcibly power it off. And then I turned it on and then it printed. And that (laughs) is uh, a simple way of getting something printed. I this whole story just gave me anxiety the moment you mentioned printing. Like I hate printers. I don't know anyone who's gone like, yeah, I really enjoy when I get my new printer and I have to install all that random software. And I enjoy that it installs twenty megabytes of software. Yeah, yeah, and all these wonderful, really rubbish printing utilities and cool add-ons and and demons and widgets and uh and the fact that just printers suck in general. The fact that yeah. we're talking about spooling, like spoolings from the sixties. Like you know, I don't think anyone even. I mean, maybe Duck. Uh, do you ever have a, a computer with a magnetic um, spooling tape? Like when you used to have magnetic tape, I never had a computer that had one of these. I had recording equipment that did, but like the whole concept of a spool, like if you said, what is a spool? And everyone's like, I have no idea what a spool is. Maybe if you've done I, some I had sewing those or some magnetic tapes. tape. Yeah. yeah. You could use those. Actually, we had a commenter on the naked security story that I wrote about print demon. Search print demon with no A A in it if you want to find the story. Who said, oh no, spool, because I said obviously spool is a metaphor that comes from spools of paper or magnetic tape. And they said, oh no, 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 no. Spool is an acronym. It's short for what was it? Simultaneous peripheral. Oh, yeah, online. Acronym, huh? <laughs> and like, no, 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 no. Someone made it fit that after <laughs> yeah. spools were discontinued. That's a backronym, yeah. not an acronym. Oh, I found it here. <laughs> Simultaneous peripheral operations online. That's the worst backronym I've, Absol- I've ever heard. Absolutely. Yes, it's like the Earnit Act that we talked about. So what's interesting is that in all of this, because you guys have talked about the complexity of setting up a new printer and the fancier it is and the newer the vendor and the newer the model and the more features it has, generally the harder it is to set up and the harder it is to write printer drivers for. The trick here seems to be that there's a built-in printer in Windows called generic space slash text space only, which is always there. And you can use that driver even as set up a 
printer to use that driver even as an unprivileged user. And of course, because it's just there in case you have no real printer and you just want to dump stuff to a file, basically it does a fairly minimal interpretation of the data you print to it. So if you print a text file, the spool file kind of contains the text. The good news is it doesn't just contain the text. So if you print an executable, what you actually get by default, fortunately, is you get a, an executable file that has a few blank lines, carriage return line feeds at the top, which mess up the file so it won't <laughs> run. And then every every line length of characters, it has a few spaces. So it's trying to make your program fit within some nice margins. So you have to and somehow does it, does persuade it put the, the, printer. the URL at the very bottom. Of, of oh, you'd like page numbering. One of 12, two of 12. Or in the case of an executable, <laughs> one of 1,006, two of 1,006. So the it's good news is that- It's a form of anti-malware, I suppose. <laughs> the good news in all of this is that the the paper that these guys wrote, I get, they, it, it's an interesting paper. It's rather long and it's quite complicated, but they sort of allowed people to infer that one line of PowerShell and you've pwned somebody's Windows system if you have a login. It's not quite that simple because all the experiments I did just using PowerShell, I couldn't figure out how to print a file, a program that didn't contain page margins that basically ruined it. So it does require quite a lot of additional effort. It's not quite as simple as they said. The other good news is if you patch early, patch often, and I know you're going to be talking about patching in a minute, Mark, then this is all moot because finally, 22 and a half years later, the bug is fixed. Yep. Okay, cool. So, Mark, moving on to you, you're going to yes. be sharing uh, what our listeners need to patch now. I am. So we often say patch early, patch often. In fact, we may even have said it on this podcast. Uh, and that's, that's fantastic advice, but life gets in the way. And things often aren't that simple. So, for example, there is, uh, you may have noticed, quite a lot of software out there in the world. Uh, and if you administer even a, a small business, it will have quite a lot of software that needs patching. And if you administer that kind of network... As for all of us, there is only so much time in the day. And if you're a generalist IT person, patching isn't the only thing that you've got to do. There are other things you should be doing too. And as administrators on big networks and anybody who's ever uh, updated Windows 10 will happily tell you, patches carry risks and they do sometimes break things. So, you know, there are reasons why people don't patch everything and they don't patch early and they don't patch often. And so the question quite often is what should you patch or what should you prioritize above everything else? And luckily for you, the US federal government is here to help. So CISA, that's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the FBI, have put together a report on the top 10 routinely exploited vulnerabilities. And the thrust of the report is that the US is under attack from cyber adversaries and that uh, a concerted campaign of patching old and widely exploited vulnerabilities would, in their words, cause significant friction to those adversaries. So I'm going to read a few uh, paragraphs from the report just so you get a flavor of what this is about. So it reads, foreign cyber actors continue to exploit publicly known and often dated software vulnerabilities. Exploitation of these vulnerabilities often requires fewer resources as compared with zero-day exploits for which no patches are available. And I think that that's a for really important resources, point. fewer resources, read no resources, right? The, the exploits are already out there, free for all, basically. Yeah, you don't really get the sense of scale and difference between what it takes to exploit something that's already widely exploited and coming up with a zero day. You know, if you uh, if you wanted a zero day for an iPhone, for example, you know, you might be in the market for for spending a million dollars or more to acquire that. So, if you look for it yourself, it's going to take a tremendous amount of expertise and a tremendous uh, amount of effort. And if you go and buy it, it's going to go and take a tremendous amount of money. So although we spend a lot of time talking about things like zero days, you know, the criminals are going to use what they can uh, get away with using. So back to the report. It reads, a concerted campaign to patch these vulnerabilities would introduce friction into foreign adversaries' operational tradecraft and force them to develop or require, uh, force them to develop or acquire exploits that are more costly and less widely effective. A concerted patching campaign would also bolster network security by focusing scarce defensive resources on the observed activities of foreign adversaries. To go back to this report, there are there are so there are two lists on the report. 
the top 10 bit actually refers to the top 10 most exploited vulnerabilities between 2016 and 2019. So this is what CISA and the FBI observed being exploited in that period. So the, uh, the, the bugs themselves don't necessarily date to that period, but that is when the exploits were used. So it's the, the, uh, the bugs themselves may predate that, like this uh, print demon, you know, which was uh, 20 years old, for example. Uh, it's, it doesn't have print demon on it, it, but it is mostly a list of Microsoft Office uh, and Microsoft Windows vulnerabilities. But you'll also find uh, SharePoint in there, uh, Apache Struts, which you know you re- mm-hmm. may remember from such breaches as uh, <laughs> Equifax. Um, uh, also, no surprise, Flash, and also bigger surprise, Drupal. So Drupal is a sort of enterprise-grade open-source content management system. So it's not all about Windows, um, and that list is super important because you know you might be thinking, okay, well, why are you telling me about exploits that happened? you know, last year or even in 2016? And the answer is, if you haven't patched those, the crooks aren't going to stop using them just because they're old. They still work. So go and get a copy of the report and go and read that list and make sure that you have patched all of those uh, exploits because that is uh, that is an inside track on the tried and trusted techniques and tactics yeah. being used by real foreign adversaries. I mean, a great example so, is WannaCry. Like we see, we see in labs still to this day, WannaCry incre- like huge amounts of detections of yeah. WannaCry across the planet, and it's because there's still computers out there still getting infected and still spreading this malware. You know, most that's of those problem. don't cause any effect, though, Greg. And this, I'm inferring from this list that these are not exploits that were attempted, like when we see a million WannaCry attacks, none of which ultimately succeeded. I mean, because they, otherwise, they are still succeeding. Eternal Blue, if if they were if they were counting the attacks that happened rather than the ones that succeeded, then I assume that Eternal Blue would have to be on this list because of the sheerly yeah. large number. But that's not even in the top ten, despite the huge number of attempts. So what I'm inferring out of this is these are exploits where there's a good reason to believe not just that they were tried, but they actually worked. And the amazing thing in this list, it covers, what, 2016, 17, 18, 19. So there's four years. And the median patch date was 2017. So that means that if you missed out these the, the median exploit here, during the year 2019, you were at least one year and up to three years out of date with an exploit that the crooks had already refined and could exploit at will automatically if they wanted. No wonder the crooks are laughing at us in some senses. Indeed. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that, especially the the interpretation of the, you know, this is uh, my reading of it as well was this is what is working for the crooks and that's why you need to go and patch it. But that was just the top 10 list. I said that there were two lists. The first list deals with the exploits up to and including 2019. And the second list is a bit shorter and that deals with what is happening right now in 2020. And one of the things that's just happened right now in 2020 is my pillow fort has collapsed on my head. So is I'm there a gonna... patch for that, Mark? Or is it a zero day? <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to work that around like the problem. That sounds like TV-1899-0001. There's a mitigation where I throw the blanket over. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. 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 I'm holding my pillow fort up with my arm now. So this is going to be, you know, we're going to end <laughs> rapidly. <laughs> so the 2020 list basically highlights three things. The first is an increase in attacks against VPNs this year. So you might remember back in April 2019, uh, there was a sudden rash of VPN vulnerabilities, quite serious ones as well. Uh, And then towards the end of 2019, there were a couple of serious vulnerabilities in uh, Citrix software, including Citrix VPN. So no surprise, VPNs are on the list because that's where there are some serious bugs and they're reasonably recent. Now, they're serious enough that you should have patched them straight away, but we know that people don't always do that. So please put that on your list and get that done. The other thing that the uh, document highlights is um, you may have noticed there's a bit of a pandemic going on 
And an awful lot of people are working from home who haven't worked from home before. And so lots of IT departments have had to uh, engage in some fairly hasty deployments. And one of the effects of that hasty deploying, uh, one of the effects of that is uh, that maybe things haven't been put up with as much rigor or as much uh, care or, you know, with ideal configurations. And so that is causing problems as well. Um, and the report highlights in particular Microsoft Office 365 deployments. Uh, and then finally, the bug that never dies, which is as worthy a place on the list for 2020 as it will be on the list for 2010 or 2000 or 1990 or probably even 1985, is social engineering. You know, people are still the big bug in your system and they need to be trained uh, and they need to be protected from themselves still. As in click here to track your parcel. Indeed. Uh, there's a re- there's a risk that comes with all these long lists of like these are the most vulnerable things because I often see you know a manager's going to go fire that off to the team and say right make sure these are all patched but it kind of forgets the the how we get exploited in the first place so um, our managed threat response service you know we get a lot of customers onboarding with us you know net new coming to us because you know they're they're facing some kind of incident and our team's able to help them out get them back on their feet and then we get our tech deployed and get them protected from that point for. Uh, that point forward. But so we've seen, you know, real nasty environments where, you know, they've got an, an adversary within it and, and, tr- and sort of spreading around and causing havoc. And we'll see them, you know, exploiting stuff like you know, vulnerabilities from 2013 in really elusive and rarely used applications. And it's because they're using simple tools like a quick scan of the network to find what is vulnerable and, and, and then, you know, cross-referencing all of that with big databases of known exploits. So this idea of saying, yes, this is the most popular vulnerability that's being exploited by bad guys, that does not mean that that means you know that's what bad guys are primarily using to exploit organizations and if you patch the top 10 or the top 20 you'll be okay because that's not how they work you know they're going to get in scan your network and try and find what you are vulnerable to it doesn't matter how old or how new that vulnerability is if it's vulnerable they will then take advantage of it you know and this is where we'll see like really you know you know rarely used applications sat on some server in azure that no one touches that no one really cares about apart from that two employees that still need to use it that they haven't bothered paying for the license for the new version and that's what the the, the adversaries will take advantage of that's what they will exploit I, I think there are two there are two key things in that isn't there the first one is you said once they're in so you have to think like how is an adversary if, if what they care <laughs> well, about true. is it might exploiting not be- the maximum number of victims rather than exploiting a specific victim then they are going to go for things that lots of people have and that are vulnerable and that's where you see things like uh, VPN service being exploited or goodness me RD, you know weak passwords in RDP yeah. just because of the sheer number of, uh, of people that have them and the other thing is you have to start somewhere so this isn't this isn't a list of these are the only things that you should be doing and if you do these then you can stop patching this is basically the u.s government saying for goodness sake guys these things are absolutely mind-blowingly serious bad bad bugs you know remote code exploitations in your internet facing systems and they are all months or years old and you should have done this by now already. You know this should be part of um, uh, uh, this should be part of the the patching job, but it's not the entire patching job. And I I feel for them. I think what they're saying is, look, if we could just get everybody in the US to just do these things, then that would make a really big difference. Um, and it's it's a shock, really, that 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 isn't happening already. Um, but it clearly is. Mark, so I tend you- to agree with Greg here that there is a that there is an important risk in these top ten vulnerability reports, just as he says that it kind of easily turns into an excuse, doesn't it? You think, oh well, I don't really know what I'm doing about patching. These are the ones I need to worry about. You know, it's you imagine that there are probably as many successful attacks with exploits 11 to 100 on the list as there are from 1 to 10. In other words, that list has a long tail and any one of those could work. And once the crooks realize it's working, then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So I think that there is a risk that these lists turn into, right, let's deal with those 10, go off and fix those 10, come back to me with that list, then I'll find something else for you to do. It isn't like that. It's you should be patching anyway, but if 
any of these aren't patched, then that's an indication that maybe we need to dig even more deeply than we thought yeah. in the first place. You know what, what? Do you know what would be a really wonderful feature? And I, if anyone from like an operating system vendor is listening to this, please add a feature that lets you know highlight all the software that's installed and and let us rank it by how old it is and give us some kind of color coding. Because like if you're running a eight or nine year old piece of software, you know the chances of a that's that there's a the vulnerability in that and that there's a new version to you know to get rid of that that vulnerability. Uh, but also just like the older it is, the more scrutiny or time that, you know, adversaries have had to try and find a vulnerability in it. So like maybe highlight to us, hey, you've got some old software and you should try looking for an update. Um, and this is actually, again, where I always find the bizarreness of, of like uh, operating systems like that aren't Linux, where on Linux, all software is in one repository. You know, I get all my updates from one place. I never have to worry about, oh, have I actually patched everything? <laughs> you know, I, oh, have I got some legacy application is, is somewhere I haven't true? updated? You're, you're not Absolutely. Greg. <laughs> Oh, all from one place. That'll be fine. From one repository. Yeah. I have a Linux server, <laughs> and and I've got some Python installs on it, uh, and I've got some some PHP installed in it, and they've got their own package managers and their own repositories, and maybe I'm using Node.js, and I've got npm, and I've got that package manager that manages well, you're the not using no of one of the tiny little apps you installed is <laughs> what was it someone looked up that there was some guy who did some research lately by the he, way guys we need to wrap oh, this up soon there was some guy who did some research lately i think mark you pointed it out it was it was a tweet that just made my jaw drop and i think he found he found some popular software that used node that it had something like, was it 1 million dependencies? When he drew yep. the dependency chart, his graph viz or whatever he was using kind of exploded because, you know, you think, hey, I updated all from one repository. Well, good luck assuming that the person or people who look after that repository really have vetted all the code that's in all the apps with all their dependencies for all of those things that you're blindly updating. Because if Microsoft can't get the print spooler right for more than 20 years, believe me, there are going to be rogueries in the shell scripts and the Python scripts and the Ruby on Rails and the nodes and the old libraries that this thing needs and the authentication modules that that needs. So there's always going to be a lot of complexity. And in my opinion, the best way to do it is try and minimize things. If the only way forward is to throw away the old and bring in something new because you can actually then document it, then, you know, maybe that's just something that you have to do. Sage advice. Just before we wrap up, where can we find you guys on social media? We'll start with you, Greg. You can find me on Twitter as at Secbug. Uh, do reach out to me. We do address your questions. And you can also find me on Reddit as Secbug, both short for security bug. Perfect. Mark? Short for Fido. Uh, you can oh. find me uh, at <laughs> Internet of Hens on Instagram if you like uh, pictures of cows and eggy bread. And pictures of hens. Oh, and pictures of hens. Um, duck? I am at DuckBlog on Twitter and I am at PDucklin on Instagram. Perfect. And I'm at Ali Rouge on Twitter. And of course, we are Naked Security Everywhere. We're just about to reach our 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. So we'd love you to follow along. Obviously, we have our exciting dark web video coming up. And Duck, you always do your weekly Facebook Lives, which are also available on YouTube. Yes, they are. So if you don't like Facebook, you can get them on YouTube. Yes, exactly. Um, and you can still ask your questions on YouTube. We'll always answer them, even if you're not watching live. Um, so thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, stay, stay, stay secure. secure.